Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. Hey, we're here today with Joe Cohane talking about strangers. There are many ways we worry about strangers. We don't want our teens to get in trouble out there in the world. Stranger danger is a term that we all think about. We want our kids to be careful, you know, stay vigilant out there in the world. And if we're not careful, we might be teaching our teenagers a lot of times to shut down and to not open themselves up to the people that they come across every day. But there's all kinds of benefits in connecting with the people around us. As our lives have become increasingly digital, it becomes more and more important to talk to the people that we meet in our everyday lives. But for some reason, it often seems surprisingly difficult to do. How can we raise teens who are good at connecting with the people around them? And why does it matter? That's the topic of today's episode. We're speaking with Joe Cohane, the author of The Power of Strangers, the benefits of connecting in a suspicious world. Joe is a journalist. He's worked for Medium, Esquire, Entrepreneur, and Hemispheres. His writing has appeared in New York Magazine, the Boston Globe, the New Yorker, Wired, Boston Magazine, the New Republic, and several textbooks. He also recently wrote a novel that's getting turned into a series. He also recently wrote a novel that's getting turned into a show. And for the past couple of years, he's been researching and working on a book about strangers. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really excited to speak with you. I just read your book, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. And it's all about your journey to get really good at talking to random people. Walk me through this. Where did this idea come from? What inspired you to write a book about it? And why do you think it's important for people to know about? Yeah, you know, interestingly, given what you talk about on this podcast, it started with my parents. I grew up in Boston and my parents were um, and are just chronic. They just talk to strangers constantly. So everywhere they go, they talk to strangers and They'll do it, you know, they'll go away on vacation and they'll come back with friends. And they're still doing this. And they're, you know, they're, they're late 70s, early 80s at this point, And they are still making friends. They're still out in the world. They're still chatting with everyone they can get their hands on. We still have random people showing up at family holidays. They'll do the move, like, which is honestly too brazen even for me of like reaching across the table in a crowded restaurant to start a conversation with someone. And they'll pull it off because they just have that manner, you know, they just have that energy to them. So I was raised, you know, I wasn't horrified by that. It was just the way that that they lived. So, you know, I was raised watching that and seeing that was a pretty good way to live. You know, I also grew up in Boston, which is a town of talkers for sure. I became an adult. I got into journalism. Journalism is, you know, in some way the art of talking to strangers. So, you know, got good at talking to people, got interested in talking to people, love the fact that no matter what you 
assumed someone was going to say. It always went differently. You know, anytime you judge someone by what they look like or their background or anything like that, they were always going to surprise you with these sort of hidden complexities. And that was, that's like the great joy of doing the job. But what I realized a few years ago, Andy, and this, you know, I think this probably started around 2018, is that though I had many hilarious adventures and had many fantastic conversations and made friends and learned things, over the years, I had found that I had kind of stopped talking to strangers. So, you know, I would go to a bar and I'd look at my phone, which is like the saddest thing in the world. I would go to the drugstore and I would pick the self-checkout line. Like, I, I just started withdrawing. You know, it wasn't a conscious choice. I just started doing it. And I noticed it one day. And so I started wondering what it was exactly that was kind of pushing me to opt out of in-person contact with strangers out of the world. And I've always lived in cities, you know, cities are defined by an abundance of strangers. So I thought about my situation a little bit. I looked into the research a little bit. And for me, it was a mix of things. Number one, I had at that point a three-year-old daughter and children are exhausting as everyone who listens to this podcast knows. So I just didn't have a lot of spare time and I didn't have a lot of spare energy. And when I did get a moment to myself, I just wanted to sit there quietly. So that was one thing. And the other thing was just the phone. You know, if you're of a certain class, certain, you know, privileged position in society, and you have a phone, you can sort of go the rest of your life without ever talking to a stranger again. So those things, but I felt like something was missing, you know? Like I, I felt like my life was less rich and there was less serendipity and less hilarity and less, you know, these kind of little moments of connection and empathy. And so I wanted to go try to figure out, you know, what the benefit of this was, what the benefit of talking to strangers was, to start looking at the research, to start try to figure out what are the circumstances under which we're more likely to talk to strangers, how do cultures form that are more or less friendly to strangers. And, you know, you basically going through the psychology research, but also going back to the anthropological record, how traditional societies dealt with strangers, talking to evolutionary biologists, talking to theologians and priests and rabbis and urban planners and everyone I could get my hands on to try to answer what seemed like a simple question, which is why don't we talk to strangers? When will we and what happens when we do? You cover some very interesting research in this book. And one set of studies I thought was really fascinating is about riding the bus or the train into work. And People are kind of imagining how much they would like having a conversation with the person next to them versus kind of just enjoying time to themselves. And from the way I read this, they imagine that they would rather spend time to themselves, but then when they actually try it out, they have report having a much better experience when they chat up with the person next to them. Yeah, it's funny. That study has been done in a couple different ways by a few different people. But the first researchers who did it were Nicholas Epley and Juliana Schroeder at the University of Chicago. This was a few years ago. But, you know, their insight came, or their inspiration for this study came when they were riding the subway in Chicago. They're riding the CTA. And they knew, you know, from being psychologists that humans are hypersocial, you know? Like, even by any animal standards, like, we are phenomenally social. Our capacity to connect is remarkable. We don't give ourselves enough credit for it. But they thought it was funny that a species whose secret you know, the secret of our success was the ability to make connections, to kind of broaden the sense of our group to include strangers and communicate with strangers and cooperate with strangers, that there would be a subway car completely filled with people who weren't talking to each other. So they wanted to, they're wondering, you know, what that was, what was causing that? 
And also, what would happen if people started talking to each other? So this is America. We've all been subject to stranger danger propaganda for many years. You know, we can talk about this in a bit, but stranger danger propaganda is both harmful and statistically baseless. And I say that as a kid who, like, spent a lot of time in grade school, like, listening to cops tell us about all manner of terrible things that will happen if, you know, you take candy from someone or whatever. But we are very pessimistic about the prospect of talking to strangers in America, in many cases, in cities more so than some, you know, smaller towns, but certainly it's there. So, you know, Epley and Schroeder gathered a few hundred people, and the experiment was going to be, you know, one of the groups was going to be sent out on the CTA to talk to strangers. And they asked them how they thought this was going to go, and everyone said it was going to be a disaster, and no one would want to talk to them, and they would be bad at it, it was going to be embarrassing, and they were going to be rejected. And then they sent the other group out just to do what they always did. And what they wanted to see, like you said, was, is it more or less enjoyable? Is your commute more or less enjoyable if you talk to people during your commute? So the group that went out, you know, dreading to do this, expecting rejection, went out and chatted with people on the subway. And then the other group just went out and did their usual thing. They kept to themselves. And what Epley and Schroeder found was that the group who talked to people on the subway had an overwhelmingly positive experience. They felt that their commutes were more enjoyable. They didn't seem to last quite as long. They felt their day was improved by it. None of them were rejected, which is amazing. Not a single one was rejected by a person that they started a conversation with. And then the other people, you know, their commute was their commute. And no one's commute, no one likes their commute. So they continued to not particularly like their commute. But that was kind of a breakthrough study that showed that, you know, we have a very pessimistic bias against talking to strangers, especially in a place like the subway where the norm is not to. But if you actually get past that and do it, you'll find that you enjoy it and also that the other person enjoys it as well. And this is one thing that, that Epley and Schroeder measured, was they actually interviewed some of the people who were approached after the fact, just to make sure that, like, you know, the study participants didn't just buttonhole these poor people and, like, you know, talk their ears off, and the people just squirmed what couldn't escape because they were on the subway. They interviewed these people, and those people reported that they enjoyed it more than they usually did as well. So, you know, that's not to say that everyone it's going to work 100% of the time or that everyone wants to be talked to on the subway, but it does show that we're not giving ourselves nearly enough credit for how good we are at this and also how enjoyable it can be to talk to other people. I think there is such that assumption that like, oh, I'd be bothering them. I don't want to, you know, butt in. And especially nowadays, everyone's always on their phone. It's like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt. They're, they're answering an important text message there or something. But there's also, you read about this phenomenon called the lesser minds problem. What is that? Yeah, Lesser Minds is, a, is an idea forwarded by Nicholas Epley. I think Juliana Schroeder worked on this. I apologize. I forget the name of the other person. Adam Waits. Sorry, Adam Waits? Yeah, so Adam Waits. So, you know, lots of University of Chicago people. But basically what it is, is that, you know, people, and this seems to be universal, this seems to cut across, you know, any sort of category line, we tend not to expect much of strangers, right? We tend to assume that their inner lives are less vibrant than ours. They don't have the same free will that we have. You know, we tend to dehumanize them a little bit, just a little bit. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a monster or you're going to do terrible things. It just means that you're underestimating the capacity of the stranger that, you've, that you're passing in the street, right? And the reason why is because you just can't see inside. You don't know what that person's inner life is like. You're just going by visual cues for the most part in your own that, you know, this person probably doesn't, probably not that interesting a person. Maybe not that complex as I am. Maybe not as much of a magical, you know, one-of-a-kind snowflake as I am. 
And the way to get around lesser minds is just to talk to people. And that cuts back to what I was saying about working in journalism is allowing yourself to be surprised by the complexity of other people is a really healthy habit to get into. You know, being open to that, being open to the fact that everyone you meet, though they may look a certain way, they may be wearing, you know, like clothes, the shirt of a certain sports team or whatever, that they are going to surprise you with their own complexity if you actually talk to them. I wonder also if that plays into, I feel like as teenagers, there's such a tendency to feel like adults don't get you or they sort of, they could never understand like what you're going through. And it seems to me like maybe this is kind of a, another sort of a shade of the lesser minds problem. Yeah, it's a couple things. So it's that, you know, certainly older people don't give younger people a lot of credit. You know, that's been, I've traced that back 3,000 years of, you know, people in ancient Greece being like, the young people today are feckless. They're not like we are. They don't respect their elders. So that seems to be something that's just been with us forever. Underestimating, you know, the, the complexity and the young people. So, but, you know, it goes the other way, too, where younger people don't give older people a lot of credit, particularly senior citizens. So, the, you know, the age gap between young people and senior citizens is one of the most difficult ones to navigate. There's this idea of, uh, called intergroup anxiety. And it's this idea that people, are, they can be a little anxious, you know, all the way to extremely anxious about interacting with someone from a different group. And that could be a different race. It could be a different, you know, ideological orientation, or it can just be a different age. And I do think adults just forget what it's like to be teenage, teenagers in a lot of ways. You know, I think that happens too. I think, you know, one of the good things about raising a child is that it forces you to reconnect with your past self in a way. If you do it well, you know, if you're deluding yourself about what you were really like as a teenager, then it's not going to work. You're not going to connect. But, you know, being empathetic and kind of living through the eyes of your teenager to remember what that was like and remember the unique challenges of it, that's, you know, that's the connection. And a lot of that comes out of actually talking to each other. But I do think that, like, if, you know, there are a lot of organizations that sort of try to foster interactions between different groups. And one of the ones that several of the founders mentioned to me was like, we would really love if we could get older people and young people together to talk. You know, the young people could learn from the older people's wisdom. The older people could learn from the energy and the optimism of the young people. And both of them could be reassured about one another, which is really important. It's a good hedge against sort of cynicism and pessimism about a different group. You write in the book about disclosure and how people who disclose when they talk about their own personal things that are going on with them are perceived as more likable. And when we do this, then other people are often likely to reciprocate and disclose things about themselves. And I guess there's a lot of times this idea that, oh, yeah, I don't want to just unload all of everything that's going on with me on this person. And again, kind of with what we were talking about earlier with like, am I burdening them or they're probably busy or they don't want to talk to me. But it's really interesting to see this research in a lot of studies showing that actually that most of the time by volunteering information uh, about yourself that it works out well. That goes way back basically to the dawn of humanity. There is an evolutionary advantage to be able to bond with strangers. As long as you can do it safely, as long as you're not under threat, there's an evolutionary advantage to growing your group and cooperating and communicating and using teamwork and building societies because that's what protects us from the wild, basically. So humanity excelled because it was so easy because we had such a talent 
for socializing, for making those bonds, for making those connections. So that's the reason why we evolved. It's the reason why we are what we are today. So, you know, on a chemical level, there is an incentive for us to make those connections. It feels really good. There can be, you know, I, there hasn't been proper research done on this, but some of the leading experts in oxytocin production at least hypothesized to me that having a meaningful interaction with a stranger might trigger the release of oxytocin, right? Which is the bonding molecule. That's like the chemical that bonds us to each other. That's the, it's produced when mothers are nursing their children. It's produced, you know, during sex. Anytime there's an intense personal connection with another person, that, that you know, that oxytocin floods your system. And that helps you solidify a bond. And the reason why our body, like on a physical level, our bodies incentivize that sort of thing is because bonding with others is good for us and bonding for others is the reason, like this is our nature, right? We're social. So this is what happens when we honor our nature. Our physiognomy rewards us for it. So when it comes to disclosure, it makes sense that our brains and our bodies are pushing us to, to connect. And how do we connect with people, right? How do you have a meaningful interaction with someone? You need to be reassured that they're not dangerous. You need to be assured that you have something in common. But there's also this sort of exchange that happens. And a lot of humanity and a lot of human culture is based on exchange. And it works on all levels. There's kind of a back and forth that needs to go on. Yeah, so you give a gift. It's like the idea of the gift, right? So you, you tell someone something. And by disclosing something, you know, you can't dump all your shit on someone right out of the gate. It has to be timed. It's a delicate dance. But you say something that's a little bit personal, a little bit private. You give somebody a little piece of what it is to be you. And what that says is that I trust you enough to handle this information. I'm making myself a little bit vulnerable. And then they respond with that trust and that vulnerability by giving something back, right? And then when you have those, sometimes you have, you know, people have the most amazing conversations on planes, on buses. We've all been in that situation where you just have an amazingly deep conversation with a total stranger that you'll never see again. You can feel the conversation progressing as you're trading disclosures, right? Like, this person says a little something, they go a little deeper, this person responds by like matching them and they kind of follow each other down. It's very, you have to be very socially adept, right? You have to be very aware of the other person while you're doing it. Because if someone's like, how are you doing today? And then you just give them like all your garbage, all your worst stuff, it's not going to work. They're going to think that there's something wrong with you, that you're chaotic, that you're a threat, and they're going to want to get out of there. We've all been in those conversations, too, where someone just wasn't reading your responses, right? But if you're paying attention to each other and you're listening to each other, you can have phenomenally good conversations with a total stranger, and you get a little tour of their lives. It's almost like travel. You just get a guided tour through the life of another person, and that's both like, you know, it can be interesting and it can be entertaining, but it's also, it kind of works in the empathy muscles a little bit, particularly if it's someone you wouldn't ordinarily talk to, right? You're just reassured again of the complexity of that person and by extension, the complexity of anyone you don't know. And that's just good for you. That makes you a better person. That makes you a more empathetic person. A lot of social harm is caused by people who are, who have a simplistic, you know, perception of other people. That's basically what racism is, right? You're just oversimplifying another group. So anything you can do to hedge against that is going to make you more worldly, more empathetic. Um, and you're also going to make a lot more friends, which is cool. I made so many friends doing this book. It was fantastic. Well, you mentioned um, listening. And I think that, I guess, that's the other side of the coin is, you know, disclosing and also listening and making people feel like we really hear them or like we're really listening to them. And that's not always easy to do. No, it's really hard to do. I think everyone or a lot of people have the tendency to just search whatever the other person is saying for something that's relevant to them, right? 
And sometimes that's fine. Sometimes that's you're just at a party and you're talking to someone and eventually you find out that you're both soccer fans or whatever it is, right? And so sometimes it can work, but it can also limit... Yeah, it's just, you know, because anytime you talk to someone, you're kind of circling each other. And almost invariably, you'll find something to talk about. There's going to be something in common. And having kids is like the best... Having kids and pets, right? Like, that's the thing. You, you know, you can find so many people who are going through a similar experience than you are. Yeah, but that can really hinder a conversation. So if you're talking to someone and you're just like, oh, you like baseball, let's talk about baseball. Then you're stuck. You're only talking about baseball. But if you listen to what they're saying and you resist the temptation to jump in and you resist the temptation just to search for things that are interesting to you and you kind of let them have the microphone and you just practice being curious, right? They say something and then just do, it's journalism 101. You just ask people open-ended questions. Why, who, how, when, and then you just let them go. I mean, it was a weird experience for me because, you know, in journalism, like a lot of times you're trying to control the conversation because you have limited time, you're doing a specific story. That's why the interviews that go on forever are great because they can just find their own direction. But it feels vulnerable and, and a little disorienting just to let someone go, right? To not try to jump in, to not try to find something that you're interested in. And then just like, you know, they say something and instead of arguing or stepping in to try to offer advice or whatever you're usually doing, just try to understand why, how they got to that point where they thought that, you know, how they got to a place where they experienced that. And then just let them go. And that's where you have really phenomenally good conversations. Again, the name, and I keep saying this, but the name of the game is to like experience the complexity of other people. And the only way you can really do that is by really listening, right? And there's some tricks to listening too. It's you maintain eye contact, which is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. You know, you don't stare, but you want to make eye contact. You you know, you show them that you're listening through your body language by saying yes. You know, you can do this like, and I, we feel a little iffy about this stuff because it's been so completely co-opted by salespeople. But you can paraphrase. So if they something say something, you can kind of repeat it back to them using slightly different words just to show them that you're listening. You can echo people. So whatever they say at the end of their statement, you can kind of say it back to them. These things help people feel reassured. They help them feel listened to. They'll make them like you more. I mean, this is why this is also like sales 101. It's kind of a cheap way to get people to connect so you can sell them whatever you're selling them. So I'm a little, you know, I always feel a little weird about it. But there are all those techniques and they're very simple and they take a little bit of practice and they can be a little uncomfortable at first. But once, you know, once you learn them and you just kind of do it instinctually and it really opens the way for fascinating conversations, you know, connections and oftentimes friendship. Yes. And I love what you point out here. You talk about listening a lot in the book. And one thing you point out is that researchers have found people who feel listened to have a stronger sense of well-being and feel less anxious. And I think that's just so true. And it's so it's such an easy thing to do to just listen to somebody, but also it's not, it seems like it should be easy, but yet we don't do it that often. Or a lot of time we're not really truly listening. And I don't know, yeah, it's a nice reminder just to... Um... Yeah, one thing that, you know, I spoke to so many college professors for this, and it was almost universal, their experience with their students. And what I heard again and again was that they were shocked at how difficult a time their students had socializing, making connections and making friends, right? And one of the reasons why it's so anxiety producing for younger people to talk to strangers, and these can be strangers in their peer groups, right? They can be other kids at school, is that they're accustomed to controlling their conversations. 
So if you're communicating largely by text, by digital platforms, like you're in control of the conversation. There's no such thing really as like the, you know, what they call the wit of the staircase. When you have a conversation with someone and then 20 minutes later afterwards, you the best line hits you. You're like, oh, I should have said that. You're in control when you're texting. And this is why I love texting too. You can set the terms of the exchange by waiting as long as you want to respond, by thinking through your response, you're controlling it. But when you're in, when you're talking to someone in person, that is a live fire situation. You have relinquished control of the terms of this conversation. And that can be kind of overwhelming for a lot of people, for a lot of younger people, particularly. The good news is, you know, there have been lots of studies done where teenagers were sent out to talk to strangers. And they, again, they greeted it. They greeted the prospect with absolute dread. And then they went out and did it. They had a phenomenally positive experience and they were shocked you know, not only by how receptive people were, but also the fact that they seem to have a natural ability to do it, right? The muscle is there. It might have atrophied a little bit, but it's there because, again, this is our nature. You know, our nature is to communicate. Our nature is to cooperate and to connect with people. We're here today with Joe Cohane talking about strangers and how to raise teenagers who are better at connecting with the people around them. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Every waking minute of your life now, you're just bombarded with stimulation. And it's exhausting. And you, if you absorbed all that stimulation every waking hour, you would go mad, right? Like, we're not wired to take in the amount of information that we're taking in. It's overwhelming, right? It's overload. They call it overload. It, it can have really adverse effects. So people adopt a lot of strategies to, which they call screens. And screens are just things that you can put up to regulate your inputs. So when you talk about someone looking at a phone, someone listening to headphones, someone sitting with their eyes closed, in many ways, that's, you know, them just having a moment to themselves, but it's also trying to block out all the stimulation. And it's very tiring. And, and when you're overloaded like that, you do need to rest. You need to give your brain the chance to recover. You know, your brain has been burning glucose as it's bombarded with the stimulation. It needs a chance to like refuel itself and synthesize the information it's taken in. There's a term for it, the default mode, which is the mode the brain switches into when you're taking a shower, when you're out for a run, when you're driving a car. It's when everyone has like their eureka moments because that's the time your brain synthesizes the information. It turns out that when you're talking about major crimes, you're talking about murder, abductions, sexual assault, felony assault, you are at a far greater risk of being victimized by someone you know than by a stranger. That being said, yeah, you want to be careful about it. You, you want to be cautious about it. You just don't want to be so cautious that you're removing the possibility of interacting with other people. So, you know, some of the ways of doing that are what I tell my daughter, who's six, you know, I try to model this for her, that we go to the bodega and we talk to the guy at the bodega. When we're at a restaurant, we, you know, we talk to the server, we chat with people. And it's really valuable because if something bad happens, like, you know, that bodega guy is right around the corner. He's going to be the one who helps, right? Making these little connections is really important. It makes the world feel more ordered. It's eyes on the street. These people will help you. If something goes wrong, like, these are the ones who are likely going to step in. But, you know, don't just go talk to someone, in, you know, at night when no one's around. You know, just be mindful of the context in which you're doing it. And I'm very aware that as a man, you know, I have an advantage here over women who have to deal with pests a lot more than I do. But interestingly, a lot of the real advocates for talking to strangers were women. And a lot, you know, I asked all of them, like, do you feel safe doing this? And most of them said, actually, all of them said that they feel safer as the result of doing it. So I read through a lot of the surveys that were attached to the, that were part of the studies that were done when like Julian Sandstrom, for example, sent a lot of college students out to talk to strangers. 
And a lot of the college students said that this was going to be a disaster. They weren't comfortable doing it. They thought they were going to be incompetent. And that's actually a fear that everyone has, that they're going to be bad at it. That's like a major barrier to talking to strangers is the fear that you're going to be rejected or you're going to be bad at it. So she sends all these kids out to do these things, and they come back, and they've had a remarkably good time doing it. And it was amazing to read these surveys because there was this sense of surprise to the kids, that they had been conditioned to think that this was a dead end, that this wasn't going to go anywhere. And it was really cool to, to read this stuff. Well, I'll read you a couple of them that, that I came upon that I thought were interesting. One kid, you know, these are all college students, and she said, I liked most of the people I talked with. I realized that it was easier talking to strangers than my friends because they did not know about my problems. Most of the conversations were small talk, but they made me happy because sometimes you realize that others are also having a bad day or agree that the weather is indeed terrible. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.